0: This is Sound Lives, a New Music Box podcast sharing insights and stories from people who dedicate their lives to new music. Brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. You're listening to Vacation Without Aggravation from the original motion picture soundtrack for Green Book composed by Chris Bowers and available on Milan Records.
1: Welcome to Sound Lives. I'm Frank J. Oteri. Today, I'll be speaking with Chris Bowers about his work scoring films, television, and video games, as well as his background in jazz. The goal of writing for a narrative story is that it doesn't get in the way of that story and that it's kind of there and enhancing it, but not calling attention to itself. So how do you navigate that since you've got great music that people want to hear? (laughs) You know, it's funny. I feel
2: like for me, you know, as a jazz pianist, one of the things that I fell in love with was accompaniment. I've always been a pretty introverted person, and I've never really wanted to be the center of of attention in, in a performance space. I also started to discover these jazz pianists, like, Wynton Kelly or Kenny Kirkland or Logan Miller that were incredible accompanists. Whenever Miles plays something, Wynton Kelly is right there to supply the perfect chord to accompany that or fills in the hole as a response. And so once I really discovered that, for me, I felt like that was the biggest pride I had as a pianist was my ability to accompany that translates pretty seamlessly for me into film scoring where for me I've always felt like that's a bit of the magic about what film score can do is that it makes you feel something and you might not even really register that it's the music that's contributing to that i read somewhere once in a film scoring book that it should be like a really great massage you shouldn't realize when the the hand comes off and when it comes back on it should be seamless just like that and all those different things i think kind of make it so that that's an aspect of film scoring that I actually really enjoy that people can discover later that it's something that gives them an emotion and a feeling and they maybe didn't realize it when they were watching the film yeah and it's interesting you
1: bring up Wynton Kelly I was listening to one of his albums last night he was a great player and a great accompanist but also a great leader and there aren't too many examples of it but I was listening to this album and there's a great tune of his called keep it moving oh yeah I don't know that tune it's a fantastic orchestration the way he navigates between like flutes and horns and things. And Mulgrew Miller, you actually studied with. Yeah, he
2: just kind of was more of a mentor that um, whenever he was in town, he would come over to either to my parents' house to give me a lesson or I would go to wherever he was. And we uh, spent a
1: lot of time together over the years. The other thing about writing for film TV media is that you have to be able to embrace a zillion different styles. So You know, you may love Wynton Kelly and his sound world and, you know, you're coming out of jazz, but you have to be a jazz composer, a rock composer, a Baroque composer maybe if you're doing like a period piece or, you know, one of a million different kinds of styles have to be part of your language. I feel like it's something that um, I have always loved about thumb scoring because I've always been into
2: different styles of music. It's almost like I've had different periods of my life. Like I feel like most of my... um, childhood I was listening to mostly popular music or music of my parents like funk and R&B and things like that and and then when I got to high school I pretty much only listened to jazz because at some point when I was in high school I used to tell my parents that I wasn't going to play anything else other than jazz because I was that obsessed with it and all this while I was studying classical music and starting to fall in love with it but specifically film score music which is something that was really important to me as well and then when I got to college I started getting more into indie rock and like hip hop and alternative music. And I think for me, that's what attracted me to film scoring was that I kind of needed to be this chameleon or, or chose to be, because I think there are, there are also composers that they just do their thing. And that's the sound and the vibe that they they bring to the films that they do. And they don't feel the need to be able to do everything. But I think for me, I've always been inspired by, by composers that that are able to do everything. And because I have so much love and appreciation for every Style of music. There really isn't a style of music that I could listen to and and not find some sort of respect for, especially if it's done really well uh, within that context. So for me, it's always just a learning experience. Every project or every genre that I might need to look at that's a little different than what I'm used to. For me, I want to give it the level of respect that it deserves, which requires research and spending a lot of time, like learning how to play it and getting into the feel of it. And I always feel like I'm a only a better musician after spending that time with any genre. And so it's
1: kind of a, a fun aspect to this job. Also, part of it is learning it, researching it, and then making it your own. I want to bounce off of something you said about certain film composers. You know, you can kind of identify their sound. It's, you know, like Bernard Herrmann, I always know when a score is by him. It has, you know, that sort of sound. And there are certain, you know, John Williams has a sound. You know, he loves the brass. There have been a few examples historically of jazz composers who did one-off scores for films. There's that great example of Otto Preminger's film with the Ellington score, Anatomy of a Murder. That was unprecedented at the time. And then Miles Davis did a score for a French film in the 50s. And then Ornette even did, you know, David Cronenberg, you know, did Naked Lunch, the, the William S. Burroughs adaptation. But they were sort of brought on to bring in their sound, which is very different than being hired by somebody to have the music fit their vision of what the film is. You know, I wonder what your leeway is in terms of what you want to do versus what the assignment is and how you navigate that. I always
2: like giving myself limitations or rules or a box and then going wild within that space. Like one of my favorite things to do when I used to practice improvising in school was like, tell myself, I'm only going to improvise within these five notes or within this octave. And because of that, you then have to figure out how to be more varied with the rhythm. If you're only using a couple of notes or finding ways to be creative with, within that space. My first step usually when working with a director is having a conversation with them about their palette what kind of music they like in general even outside of the context of this film a discovery of, of some of the music that they might like or some of the sound that they might like that's a little different than even what they're they're articulating want for this project which is helpful and also I think once we start to figure out what palette they really want for a project or for the film I usually like trying to figure out how to push the boundaries of that and how to experiment within that and so often I'll, I'll uh kind of start with a pitch of what I think might be an interesting way to do that. Like recently I was just talking to somebody about a, a sci-fi film set in the future, but it's really about this married couple. One of them has a a terminal illness. So with that, one of the things that came to mind for me was that this should feel more intimate as opposed to sci-fi. Like the sci-fi aspect should be maybe a backdrop to this story about these characters. So the, the music should really reflect that. And it's something that they agreed with. And so that's the direction that I might go with that. But within that context, I'll probably stretch the boundaries and try a bunch of different things. But the one thing that I won't do is have a very synth forward score for that, because that's what we talked about not working. Now that I have that rule for myself, I can kind of play around and do all these crazy things within the context of the rules that we've set, which is a bit helpful for me.
1: That's fascinating because sci-fi is always some kind of synth forward. Like in the early days, there was a sci-fi film. There was always a theremin. Yeah. <laughs> now that synths are everywhere, I mean, synths are the present, so they're not necessarily the future. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I
2: mean, it's yeah, it's been set up as like you said, so much of the the vernacular. It's like just the sound we expect. That um, it's not maybe what it actually will be in the future. I'm curious to see what
1: that sound will actually be when we're 50 years from now you did this amazing, amazing score for Green Book, which is all about Don Shirley. And the piano is the centerpiece of the orchestration for that. And obviously it's because you come from a keyboard piano background, but also because Don Shirley was a pianist. It would be really weird if there was no piano in that soundtrack.
2: Yeah, or or, or interesting. It's definitely something we had talked about possibly trying and decided not to. But um, to me, it's like, what is that choice representing narratively, right? Because I think that like, like I'm working on another project that um, it's a pianist and the pianist ends up not being able to play piano for a while. And with that, it probably makes sense for there to not be piano in the score because it's representative of this thing that they're struggling with, even though they're a pianist. And so, or could be, if we add piano to that, then maybe that's something that makes us continually think about what this person doesn't have in their life. So it's like trying to figure out what makes the most sense? And with Green Book, for me, that the score kind of represented more of the music and sound that I imagined inside of Don Shirley instead of the music that he was creating. So I felt like the music he created and the music that we hear in the film, a lot of it is stuff that he honestly didn't really want to do or felt like he was being forced to do. And the music that he really loved was more classical or Negro or spiritual and
1: all of that. And so trying to figure out a way to very slightly represent that in the score was my decision there. And of course the challenge with somebody like doing a score about Don Shirley is that you don't want to be sounding like Don Shirley necessarily. Did you listen to a ton of Don Shirley before you wrote this score?
2: You know, because we had to do all the songs beforehand
1: and all of that stuff I had to transcribe, I
2: was pretty, pretty drowned in Don Shirley for like the few months before and during shooting and all of that. And with my transcribing and with the performance, I really wanted to try to play as close to his playing as possible. And then with the score, it was like one of the things I chose to do was actually have another pianist play the score. I wanted it to be a different sound when you hear the Don Shirley music, or there are a couple of score cues that are meant to kind of mimic his sound as well that we hear in the beginning of the film. And so that's all me playing. And then Once we get into the orchestral stuff, we have another pianist that played primarily so that it had a different feel, a different touch, a different sound, and also so that it could feel a little bit less, like you said, like Don Shirley as far
1: as the way it was played. So getting into the zone of empathy with the characters you're writing about, for Don Shirley, there are lots of connections. Pianist, composer, somebody kind of straddling genres, that's someone you can identify with and you've done a number of scores for sports related stuff. You know, Kobe Bryant is, was sadly, you know, a hero to so much of the community, somebody who's easy to identify with or the central park five, the outrage of that. I mean, that's definitely something that you can have a zone of empathy for, even though it was before your time. Yeah. But then you just did a score about Phyllis Schlafly. (laughs) I don't (laughs) think that she's somebody that's, necessarily easy for you to identify with or, or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. I feel like I could identify with the fact that
2: I have a lot of family members that I don't agree with on their views of the world or their views of politics or different aspects of life. But at the same time, I have a profound love for them and appreciation for them and understanding. And, and so I think that when I first read the script for Mrs. America, that was the thing that made me most excited was that I read this whole first three episodes, but with that first episode, they wrote it in this way where you're kind of rooting for this character and really want to see her win until you find out at the end of the episode, what her, her new objective and goal is with the ERA. And throughout the season, then you are dealing with this very human character that's, that's very human, but then at the same time is doing something that, that a lot of us feel is really terrifying and horrifying. And so For me, that's kind of where um, it gets really interesting because that's real life to me. (laughs) You know, I think to me, there's so many people that, especially in a time like now, we're so divisive and we feel like everybody that doesn't see exactly the same way that we see the world, that they're bad people. And and it's just so much more gray than that black and white. and, And those people are most likely good people to somebody in their lives. Like somebody in their life thinks that they're a good person. They're doing something for love. They're trying to operate from a place of love in their mind. And so trying to figure out how to see the human side of people, I think is maybe the best way for us to not be in such a divisive, uh, horrifying place. So I think that content and, and films and TV that do that are really exciting to me. And for me, I actually really loved needing to represent this human side to this character that I didn't agree with because it helped me understand uh, or remind myself that those people that I might disagree with politically, especially in a time like this, that they're humans at the end of the day. And and that's something to keep in mind and, and to, yeah, really
1: remember. So you do kind of have to develop a level of empathy for the characters you're writing for, always.
2: For me, that's the only way that I can really get to something honest. I think that any time that I did not really feel that, whether it's because of the acting or the writing or just because I didn't connect to the story for some reason, it was really difficult for me to write music, primarily because of how deep I prefer to go with the way that I feel when I'm writing something and how i found that most often when I feel that emotionally connected to what I'm writing, it translates and it connects to somebody else. But there are, of course, times where I write something that maybe I'm not as connected to that still affects somebody, but I think that um, it's very difficult, and, and I think that it's more likely that it will reach other people if it's something that came from an honest and emotional
1: place for me. So are there projects you wouldn't sign on to because there's no way you can feel empathy for the character? If I'm not particularly connected to the writing, I think that
2: sometimes that might be An instance where it's difficult to feel empathy for a character, maybe because the character hasn't been developed in a way that is allowing for that for me. But otherwise, I think that if the writer or director, whomever has created the story is not trying to um, go there or represent these really honest aspects of people. I think that if somebody's going to present a very shallow version of somebody or a very stereotypical version of a character, that's something else that I don't really feel that... Excited by or connected to because it it feels like being a black man, being a person of color, and seeing how much the type of content that's been made with people that look like me has affected my life, has affected the way that I see myself, especially growing up in the 90s and looking at how black men were represented during that time, and looking at now and looking at some of the ways that black people are being represented today and how beautiful that is and how it affects me. I feel like it's really reaffirmed for me that anybody that's not trying to do that, push the boundaries and, and figure out how we can be representative in, in really beautiful and complex and positive ways. Yeah, I don't really feel like I, I want to be a part
1: of that either, uh, the, the negative side of that. Yeah. You've done a lot of scores for stories that have Black central characters which is why the Phyllis Schlafly thing really stands out. <laughs> yeah. But but I'm also thinking of the show for the people because there you have a very wide cast of all different kinds of folks. Why should you be typecast? Oh, you know, we're only going to hire Chris Bowers when we have the story about a Black protagonist. You should be able to write scores about anybody just like anybody else writes scores about anybody. That's the drive and that's the uh,
2: the hope, right? I think that like we're getting to a place where people are starting to understand that and see that and and see the issues with not feeling that way. You know, I think that it's interesting that when you brought up some of the Black composers from the past and thinking about Quincy Jones's story and how I just read recently that the first feature that he did that wasn't any sort of jazz, quote-unquote, Black thing, it was Henry Mancini that recommended him for it and recommended Quincy to this director And the director essentially said, like, I don't really know if I want a black score. And Henry Mancini had to tell him that, you know, Quincy really could do what he needed for it. And of course, he ended up hiring him and then the rest is history. But I just had a conversation with the director recently that they're making a story about a Mexican character that comes to the States. And I expressed that they should maybe reach out to a Mexican composer or at least a, a Latinx composer. And their response was, well, I don't really want a Mexican-sounding score for this film. And I think that, you know, the fact that now, what, maybe like 60 years later, that conversation can still be had where somebody feels like they are worried about somebody only being able to write within a very small medium or, or genre, a little disappointing. But I think that at the end of the day, we are getting a little bit further and and having conversations about it, I think, is, is a pretty amazing thing. And I feel really fortunate that I'm getting a lot of opportunities that don't have to do with with my race. And I feel like it's kind of a newer thing for composers of color to be writing music for projects that don't have to deal with that. And I think that has more to do with the directors and producers that are maybe now starting to feel a little less nervous about that than, than anything else. Because I think the talent has always been there in, in
1: these communities of color. I know that you you're involved with the panel for a program that we're overseeing at New Music USA, the Real, which we're now calling the Real Change Program, which is a way of creating, incentivizing and creating opportunities for a much wider range of composers than the folks who were typically associated with writing music for film. You know, I'm curious about how you got involved with this project and how, you know, your career trajectory, what you can do to be a role model for others now that you've made it, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know about that,
2: but, you know, I've been um, introduced to New Music USA a little while ago and um was talking to them about coming on to their advisory board. And I have a couple of friends that have been funded or given grants by New Music and had done a bit of research about the organization. During that conversation, it was kind of just after that, that they reached out to me about this program that they're doing um, to increase diversity in this space. And I felt like, you know, it's so exciting because it's something that if it were around even a few years ago, I definitely would have applied to it. And I feel like it's something that can continue to encourage Composers of color to pursue uh, what they're trying to do on a level that maybe they didn't think they could before. You know, being able to write a score for a film and record it with a decent sized orchestra or small chamber group or whatever you're able to do with the funding that they might get from this grant, I feel like uh, is something that often doesn't really happen until you have a, a full budget project. And those are Hard to come by these days, especially for newer composers it's something that I really hope for whomever is able to um receive funding for it that it it really gives them a boost in terms of um not only you know visibility or or their career or things like that, but I also just think the creative aspect up until I started doing scoring sessions like I wasn't able to have a group of musicians play of a large size, play my music since college. Because, you know, when you're in school, you can ask people to do that for some pizza or something like that. But I think after that, people are expecting to to get paid and, and uh, you have to have a budget to be able to do that. And that's really difficult. And so whenever you're able to do that, or the first times you're able to have a budget enough to have a large group of musicians get together and play your music, it's such an amazing and special feeling as a composer. It's something that, allows you to hear your writing on that level and hear where you're at. And and it's something that I think that young know, composers of color would really benefit from and, and it could really inspire them to continue on the on the path that they're already trying to go on, especially at that early stage, which can
1: be a bit difficult. I want to talk about this from a slightly different angle. You know, it's great that it's an opportunity for all these composers, but it's also a really important opportunity for audiences for our society considering how wide-reaching film and even more wide-reaching television are you know the, the the stories that get told and they get told in part through the music it's the people directing it's the people writing the screenplays but it's also the composers it's everybody the more variety of people who are involved in this the greater variety of stories are going to reach the public and hopefully give greater empathy to the people watching these things. Because if a work of art does something good, you know, it moves you and it makes you think about something in a different way and it gives you feelings of connectedness to these people. And then, you know, maybe we could have what you were saying earlier, that people aren't understanding people who don't agree with them and we're at this terrible point maybe if more people got to tell these stories and write the music that goes with these stories, that would change. Yeah, I totally I totally agree with that. Is that something you think about when you decide to take on a project?
2: There are times where I think of that, maybe in, in different parts of the, the process. I think that for most of it, I'm honestly just focusing on trying to do the best job possible. And I think that I am always challenging myself to be better, today than I was yesterday and pushed myself probably a little bit too much with that. And so I think that often I'm mostly consumed with trying to do as good of a job as possible and not thinking so much about how the project might be received or how it might be received that I'm working on something. But I do think that every now and then, especially in conversations with other people, it's interesting to be mindful of of that and mindful of that for my own community, for uh, anybody else that's kind of watching it's interesting to talk to other young composers or people in the industry in general that talk about being excited about my career because of what it represents it's it's such a weird thing for me i guess cuz you know it's something that most of my childhood and most of my life i've thought about getting to even this point and and imagining what i wanted to do in my career and it's only now that i'm starting to realize how one, how interesting it was that I that I imagined all of that as a young black boy and and didn't have many, you know, role models as far as like black famous film composers that I could be looking up to. And the few that I did have, like Quincy and Terrence and Marcus Miller, like I definitely was pretty obsessed with as well. But for me I I also felt just as much kinship with John Williams as I did Quincy Jones and Terrence Blanchard. And so I, I didn't really like See the barrier of race until I got into the industry itself and it's been interesting to kind of navigate that and uh, see how my career is being received for me personally with my own career I don't really think about it too much it probably just because it's a bit strange to think about but but as far as other composers I definitely see that and feel really excited by that and kind of feel exactly what you're talking about like seeing you know, something like Jermaine Franco, or seeing like Michael Abels, and and what their music does for projects, and what it's doing for people that that see their careers and see what's happening with what they're doing. It's really, really
1: beautiful. Let's talk about that moment where that career started because we kind of talked around it. You talked about announcing your parents that you're only going to listen to jazz, you're only going to play jazz, <laughs> and you know, and then you go on, you win the Thelonious Monk competition, which is like one of the biggest things you can win as a young emerging musician, then your career goes in a completely different place. What happened? (laughs) Really it's
2: impatience, I think for me. I think that uh, it's funny because when I graduated high school, I told my parents that my plan was to go to college for jazz piano and eventually tour with, you know, one of my favorite artists, which at that time was Terrence and tour with him for a few years and then transition into touring with my own band and do that for a few years and then I'll get into film scoring a little bit later and so film scoring has always been the goal when I was younger my dad was a a writer for film and tv and movies were just always a big deal in our house and so uh, being a pianist since I started playing piano when I was four that was the way that I really processed these films emotionally I think that I loved the stories and all of the action on screen and thinking about all the movies in the 90s that really inspired me. But the thing that felt really magical to me was the fact that I could go listen to the score outside of the context of that and still feel the same excitement and nostalgia and emotions that I was feeling when I was watching the film. And so I got into film score music when I was probably 10 or 11 and again told my parents for a pretty long time that that was going to be my goal and my plan but then I started touring and ultimately I ended up touring for maybe about three or four years but one of the first tours I did was with Marcus Miller for a year and at the end of that tour we got into a bus accident where the driver passed away and it was a pretty pretty traumatic experience and uh and then I toured for a couple of years with this singer named Jose James and with my own band and especially touring with my own band feeling just the difficulty of, of being on tour you know I think that it's something that some of the musicians used to joke about the fact that we don't get paid to play. We get paid for everything else that goes into touring, like the airport, the plane, the bus, all that stuff. And especially as a band leader, you are doing all of that and usually not making money, often losing money, trying to take care of your band members. And I had a point where I realized I would rather be up until 5 in the morning at home working on a score. Then at five in the morning, getting on a bus to go to the next city, essentially. And so I decided to try to find a way to get into it a bit sooner than I, than I was planning. But it was kind of always the goal. Getting the first gig
1: scoring something. How did that happen?
2: I kind of think of it as two times. Because the very first thing that I ever scored, that happened because after the Monk competition, I ended up connecting with Aretha Franklin because she she was getting an award that same year from the Monk Institute. Uh, which is now called the Herbie Hancock Institute. But she heard me play in the semifinals and asked to meet me. And she asked for my number and after the competition, she called me and just kept in touch with me. And I continued to you know, play for her birthday and Christmas parties and kept in touch with her for a number of years until she passed. And the first conversation I had with her, she was like, I think you need a manager. I think that's the first thing you need. And to be honest, your manager should be your biggest cheerleader, so I think you should maybe consider hiring my publicist to be your manager because she would make a great manager just with like the excitement and energy she has. If, if you had that kind of manager, that could be really good for you. And so this woman, Tracy Jordan, she was my manager for maybe a year. During that time, because I had talked about film scoring so much, she made it her mission to try to find a film for me to score. First film was this uh, documentary about Elaine Stritch, the Broadway actress. That came because of this woman, Tracy Jordan. She was friends with the director and they were looking for a jazz score. I had just won the Monk competition. They brought Elaine to my senior recital at Juilliard and then they all decided that the music I made was a good fit and so uh, that was my very first project. And then that same director produced a project that I did after that and then I didn't do anything for a couple of years And it wasn't until a friend of mine from high school, we actually didn't go to the same high school together. We were in a high school all-star jazz band together. But I used to talk about film scoring so much back then that he came to a show of mine and we hadn't spoke to each other since we were both in high school. Came to a show of mine with my own band and said, you know, I'm working on this documentary about Kobe Bryant. And I remember when we were kids, you used to talk about film scoring and I've been checking out your music and I really love your music and I think it could be a good fit. That project really felt like the big first break because that led to working with Kobe up until he passed. That led to doing three or four other documentaries for the same directors and producers. And also the music that I did for that is what helped me get into the Sundance Composers Lab and also got me my first agent and all of that. So I really feel like the Kobe documentary was the one that really catapulted things, but the very first one was that Elaine Trish documentary.
1: Fascinating. And did you get into the zone of empathy for Elaine Stritch writing that score? Yeah, 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 definitely. Especially because she was
2: dealing with so much at the time where she was diabetic, but then also an alcoholic. And also you couldn't tell her that she wasn't going to live her life the way she wanted to because of her personality and, and the way that she was. And so the feeling for that score was this balance of this side of her that was very sweet and loving and thinking about her relationship with her husband and all of that, and also representing the vulnerability that she was facing with her health, but then at the same time having this kind of bold and unapologetic side to the score as well. That was kind of like the first time that I started to figure out how to represent these aspects of somebody through a score.
1: I keep harping on this zone of empathy thing because I listened to an interview you did when you were talking about scoring the NFL video games that you've done. What I thought was interesting about that is you're scoring for a user who you don't necessarily know. The zone of empathy you have to create is for somebody who could be anybody. It's the end user. How do you get in the zone where you don't know who the person is that you're scoring?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think with that, it it really was um, came down to the, the genre, quote, unquote, or the the sound that was inspiring the the music. For the video game, there, there is a narrative that's happening where basically you're trying to be drafted. That's the goal in, in both years that I worked on Madden. And because of that, the thing for me was establishing a theme for the character and then figuring out ways to kind of play with that theme as they're going toward this goal. But the sound of the theme, I think the first year, for me, it was almost more representative of myself in terms of like the music that I'm into and having this wide range of musical inspiration where I wanted the score to feel like it was inspired by dirty projectors just as much as it was Thomas Newman, just as much, as much as it was some hip hop artists. And so I think that that was kind of the idea there was trying to meld all these genres. And for me, I felt like it was a good approach just because of how much, most young people these days are into a wild array of music. For me, that's kind of more what it was representative of is just the fact that like as a generation, I think that we are all so into just all these different styles of music. And then for this most recent year, the head of music for EA Sports, Steve Schner, he really wanted to push it even further into almost like more into the hip hop space. I think primarily because that's the sound of Madden in general, like they have the game side of the game, and then there's also this narrative side to the game. And the last two years, the narrative side to the game had much more of a cinematic sound. I think the year before I did it, it was John Debney, and the year before that, it was Jeff Russo, or maybe I got this reversed, but that's the sound that they were bringing to it. And then again, the first year that I did it, it was, although I was melding all these genres, it still was primarily orchestral and very emotional and cinematic. And this year we went full on production, and and it sounds more like beats than orchestral score. There's still our moments where we have strings and emotional things, but it was trying to get a little bit closer to the sound of the rest of the game.
1: I haven't played the game. I'm not really a gamer, but I did. Manage to, <laughs> I did manage to track down a lot of the music and listen to it, and I loved a track that you did called "Game Time," which sounds like it's backwards sound, a backwards so- sound all of. So you you were really like able to experiment within that, too, yeah. which I thought was really cool.
2: Yeah, definitely. It was, it's really amazing to have that space where, you know, they didn't have any notes or critiques about They They just kind of took anything that I would throw at them. And so it really allowed for us to play and do some really interesting and different things.
1: But that leads to a question about the different kinds of media to score for, you know, the difference between writing for a narrative film writing for an ongoing series that has new iterations each week, or a game. The music serves a similar function in these different mediums, but because the formats are very different, I think there are different things that you can do in them, and maybe different things that you have to do in them. So I'm curious about how you approach the Scoring Project, whether it's a TV show. You said something about Phyllis Schlafly at first. You don't know what she's going for so you're you're writing music that's really kind of on her side and then eventually you find out in later episodes whereas with a film you don't have that kind of sequential thing in the same way the
2: thematic development i think is kind of the biggest difference with all of those when you are working on a tv show the development not only happens over such a longer period of time but it's also the difference between how that develops through an episode versus through the whole series can be really different and sometimes an episode is focusing on something that is you know not tangential but maybe just another aspect to the story and so there might be a time where you know you're focusing on just this other character or this part of the story and so that's the theme and that's the idea that you're trying to tie together by the end of the episode And maybe that theme doesn't even appear again throughout the rest of the season. Or maybe that theme only appears again at the very end when they revisit whatever it was that you were talking about in that episode. And so the way it's spaced out is not only different in that way, but also um, for the most part, I do get scripts. So I do try to read ahead so I can have an idea of what the entire season is before we see it. But then outside of that, if we don't have a script where really learning about the show on a week-to-week basis as we work on it. So we'll be doing a spotting session. And then after the spotting session, I have maybe a week to 10 days to turn around the score. And then we do the spotting session for the next episode. And because we're usually so focused on a specific episode at that time, I'm not really looking ahead. So I'm focused on that episode and I'm trusting the director really at that point to help guide what we should be feeling emotionally and, and trusting their process with letting me know how big or small we should make something in an episode because of how it ties to the rest of the series. And I think with the film, it's much easier for me to have an idea of that because I'm watching the whole thing. But then with the film, you have so much more music usually that you're trying to all fit and create some sort of continuity and through line. And the video game thing has been interesting because it's you have to find ways to create loops and these different things that can as soon as this decision's made on the game, now this other el- musical element comes in so that it feels like something shifted. You know, those types of things are really interesting because you end up writing much more modularly where I can write something that they can build uh, with the build of a scene in the game. And so if they have a track that has, you know, a drum beat and a horn part and then a synth melody, they want that separated out, separated out so that they're able to just do the drums and the horns first, and then they add the synth melody when this decision's made or something like that. And um,
1: that's kind of interesting as well. I can't believe, you know, like almost an hour's gone by and we haven't talked about Heroes and Misfits, which is such an amazing album. And I did want to talk to you a bit about it. And things about that album make sense now in terms of you saying what you like your role to be and, you know, being introverted and being collaborative, because that album is so many different things.
2: yeah it's funny because when i wrote it um one of the things that i felt really charged by is that i don't know if it was a teacher of mine or a friend of mine but somebody mentioned how whenever you hear a musician's album you know whose album it is by, by who's the loudest on the album like you know it's a bass player's album because the bass is way loud louder than any other album you've ever heard before and for me i felt like I didn't want that. Maybe it's because I see myself as a composer just as much or if not more uh, than a pianist. But I think that for me, it was like creating this feeling and this space of what was going to be the best way to get to that feeling. And often it's not a piano feature or something that was going to feature me as a musician, but could I create or engineer a feeling compositionally? That was kind of the biggest driver for me for that album was representing these different ideas that I was into about our generation and different things like that, but compositionally more than as a, as a
1: player. My two favorite tracks on that album, which are very, very different from each other, the opening, Forever Spring, which is, you know, that's sci-fi music in a way. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but then the song Forgetter is so poignant and there are so few words to it and they just repeat over and over again, but it just sets this mood. It's so evocative and so... It's magical, but that's something you co-wrote with Julia Easterlin. And I'm just, I'm curious about, you know, your openness to collaborating, not just in the performing of the music, but in the actual composing of it.
2: I wrote a lot of that album when I was on tour, because basically I won the mock competition and you get a record deal from that competition. But I also immediately started touring with Marcus Miller after that. And so we decided that it made more sense for me to continue to tour and, push off my record release by like a year because I won the competition at the end of 2011 and so my album should have come out in 2012 but it didn't come out until 2014 because of the touring and all that and so I was writing a lot of that music while on tour and wanted to collaborate with people primarily because I always feel like collaboration allows me to just pushes me in different directions that I don't expect myself to go or wouldn't have gone by myself and so songs like Wake the Neighbors that I wrote with Adam Agati, my guitarist, and "Forget Her." the way that I wrote that with Julia was um, all remotely. Basically, she sent me just the sounds. She's really into loop pedals and creating these soundscapes with just like her mouth. And she even does like body percussion and things like that to create these interesting sounds and textures. And so she sent me a loop first that were just sounds that she created. And then I created a chord progression over that and some kind of percussive ideas. And then she sent me back a slight melody idea. Then I kind of sent her back another section. The first time we actually ever worked on the song together in person was at the recording session because we had written it all virtually up until that point in the recording session, kind of figure out how to do it performance wise. But that first part of the track before it goes into the instrumental solo section and all that, that first part of the track was all conceived over email and it was, really cool to, to, you know, to get something. And then I added a little bit and then sent it back to her and you have no idea what you're going to get back. And, you know, there are times where I would add just a little bit and get something back from her that took it in a totally different direction than I was expecting. But that's the beautiful
1: thing about collaboration. You did a score for the Alvin Ailey Dance Company, which is also it's media music, but it's media music in a different way. But because there's no spoken narrative, the music is allowed to shine you're focused on the dance with your eyes, but your ears don't have any other distraction besides the music. So in a way it allows the music to be more foregrounded, even though it's still media music and still collaborative.
2: Yeah, and often what's interesting with that is how much the music is informing the movement as opposed to vice versa with film where I'm responding to something else. And so it's always fascinating to me to work with dancers where with that, with Kyle Abraham, who's the choreographer for that piece, We had worked together a little bit before, but the way that he works is similarly talking about a feeling and, you know, this emotion that we're trying to convey that Alvin Ailey piece had to do with people that were talking to family members of theirs that either were incarcerated or previously incarcerated and how that made them feel. There was a very clear emotion that we were dealing with, but I'm not writing to anything specific. They had a little bit of movement, but for the most part, it was really about me just kind of creating a, a feeling and, and an emotion. And they find ways to react to that. And it's always a fascinating process for me working with dancers because they hear things in the music that we usually don't as musicians. Like There are so many times where a dancer will choreograph something to my piece. And one thing that's a very small, almost insignificant sound to me is incredibly important to them and signifies a certain movement or catalyzes a movement for them. And again, it's just the collaboration thing that makes it so fascinating because you hear even your own music in a different way because of how
1: somebody's decided to set movement to it. In terms of hearing things a different way, and we talked a little bit about nonlinearity in video games, another thing I was struck by was the deconstructing anthems. Once again, the music is foregrounded in that you're not hearing anything else, but it's part of a larger concept that's a visual concept and it's not something people are necessarily hearing from start to finish in real time. It's a sound installation. So that has a completely different way of interfacing with sound. You know, what we did is take the national anthem and played it a number of times. I think it ended up being
2: 15 times and it was accompanied by this light installation that was reactive to sound. And so whenever sound was present, lights were on. And whenever sound's not present, the lights go off. The idea was that over those 15 repetitions of the national anthem, we would start removing notes by using an algorithm that the artist created. And we created all these rules as to why those notes were being removed, but they're being removed at the rate of mass incarceration in the Black community over time. By the fifteenth time, we're dealing with the highest percentage of incarcerated Black men because of whatever year we were we were using data-wise. But it also made it so that the anthem uh, was completely silent or, or almost completely silent in that last time, and the room we were in is completely dark because of the the way the lights are reacting to it. And it was something that I I felt one a bit nervous about just because you know messing around with the anthem is something that I think a lot of people take very personally (laughs) and doing it this way I thought it's very easy for people to think we're making mistakes because the notes are being removed at random basically the way it works is that every performance we would feed these rules into the algorithm every performance so that it spits out a different version as far as what notes were removed at what rate and then when we perform it, because those notes have been removed randomly, it just feels like, you know, somebody's taking scissors and just chopped up these different parts of the song. Like it just kind of stops randomly in these different moments. As the piece continues, it happens more and more frequently and then it's it's mostly silent. But watching people sit there for I think maybe 30 minutes, it showed how much all of those things coming together can create this profound emotional experience because people sitting there started to feel we didn't talk about what we were doing or why. We didn't talk about what the mass incarceration aspect or or what the algorithm was doing. All we did was just perform it and these lights were reacting to the performance and people somehow were moved by hearing the sparseness of this anthem that is, is supposed to represent this country. And it was a really, really special project to be a part of, for sure.
1: Fascinating range of projects. I know you're like involved with like five things now. You're doing a score for a film about Billie Holiday, which I'm very intrigued by because I love Billie Holiday. So I'm curious about, you know, how much Her Sound World gets into that score and how you're navigating that. Yeah, it's been really interesting. Andrew
2: Day plays Billie and is really incredible in it. And Salam Remy reproduced a lot of the Billie Holiday songs for the film. For me, for the score, it was kind of a little bit closer to my process for green book where there's something about the feeling that i was trying to capture about billy and the music isn't very representative of her music i mean there's a theme that's really inspired by strange fruit that i think you can really hear but other than that the music is for me like representing the i don't know the emotional roller coaster that she was dealing with like the height of her career and and how much of a star she was and also how much of an incredibly strong woman she was and powerful, but then at the same time, how she was a drug addict and was abused by most of the men in her life. And so finding ways to represent all of those things musically has been been the
1: journey for that. I can't wait to see it and hear it. Thank you so much for your time with us. This has been a wonderful window into your world. Very much appreciated. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks so much for all the amazing questions. This is Sound Lives, a New Music Box podcast. I'm Frank O'Terry, and my guest today was Chris Bowers.
0: You're listening to Forgetter, composed and performed by Chris Bowers and Julia Easterlin from Chris Bowers' album Heroes and Misfits, available on Concord Jazz. New Music Box is brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. This program is funded in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, the New York State Council on the Arts, the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, and listeners like you. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit newmusicusa.org to explore more stories and voices from our new music community.